Equity is our labor of love. From humble beginnings in the back corner of our old office at 410 Townsend to the remote work world of today, for the past four years, Equity has been TechCrunch's flagship podcast for news on early stage rounds, seed stage startups, what's up with the biggest unicorns, and of course, the hottest IPOs. We've talked to dozens of VCs, recorded hundreds of episodes, and covered the biggest stories in the world of startups and venture capital, all so that you can stay informed. Now, we get asked all the time, how can people support the show? Well, the best thing you can do is to subscribe to Extra Crunch. If you do, you'll support Equity and you'll get access to things like our best reporting, the Extra Crunch live series, deep dives into sectors, investor surveys, and of course, my daily column, The Exchange. You can sign up at techcrunch.com slash subscribe and use the discount code equity. We appreciate you and your support of the show all these years. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechRunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I am joined this week as I am each and every week by Danny Crichton, one of TC's managing editors. Danny, how are you and how is life? I am doing all right. I had my first in-person VC meeting this morning and so far I feel okay. So that's great. Things are returning slightly to normal, minus the 32.6% annualized decrease in the GDP. Uh, I thought we weren't going to bring up bad news, terrifying financial metrics on the show, at least to the second half. You're breaking, you're breaking the rules. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also on the show today, we had Natasha Moscarenas, uh, one of our early stage and VC reporters. Natasha, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. Got off a flight earlier this week and just got a COVID test. So I'm in like the other bucket where Danny's like doing the meetings and elbow bumping. I'm like freaking out and hoping to get a positive test result or negative test result. Positive news. Positive or negative? (laughs) Positive news, negative test result. It's good to be negative, a bit like a German bond. All right. Now let's talk about, um, (laughs) I have to start with a- Such an Alex response. (laughs) Look, if you can never make a bond joke, you have to do because they're so infrequent that you can make a joke about yield. But before we talk about YC and other cool stuff, I have a correction to make from the uh, SPAC shot that Danny and I did, I misunderstood a, a part of the, the rules with SPACs. So I'm going to try to explain what I got wrong. I said on the show that you have to spend 80% of the cash from a SPAC on a deal. And I misinterpreted that by thinking that that meant that the deal size could only be as large as 80% of the cash in a SPAC. No, I talked to PwC and I learned more about this and my, my apologies for the error. Uh, you have to spend 80% of the cash in a SPAC, but you can use it to buy a fraction of a company. So you can buy a much larger firm with a SPAC. So if you see someone saying, here's a $500 million SPAC, we're going to take a $4 billion company public. That is a possibility. Of course, the float will be relatively low to the market cap. It's a nuance. It matters. My apologies. We hate to make mistakes, but there's a correction for you. So if that doesn't make sense, don't worry about it. It doesn't really matter. But if you caught that error, uh, we are sorry. Okay. Now back to equity things. Why Combinator's demo day is going to be virtual. But also, Natasha, it's going to be live, which is a change from before. Yeah. So we are one month away, as I'm sure you all are well aware. Put it on your calendars. August 25th and 26th, Y Combinator is going to have its demo day. And unlike last batch, instead of having pre-recorded pitches, it's going to have live pitches, which I'm excited about. I think that it was based off of feedback from its previous go. They wouldn't tell me the candid feedback, but if you read between the lines, I'm sure that founders just wanted the hype and like the jitters of preparing to say something live instead of just recording to a screen. It'll be it'll be fun to see what it turns out like. 
Yeah, I'm excited by this. Now, if I recall, we've seen other demo days go virtual and live. I forget if it was Techstars or 500 Starts that did this first, but we, we've seen some of these go off in a live format with some hiccups, to be clear, but it does feel much more engaging to watch a live thing versus to watch effectively stitched together pre-records, in my view. Yeah, definitely. I think that demo days are such a material part of the Accelerator experience. And I, caught, I actually caught up with a bunch of founders, you know, they're, what they're feeling like, how they're, how they're doing. And the big thing that I've heard so far is that vulnerability through Zoom calls is kind of like this thing that people disagree on. Some people say that Zoom calls just have to be business oriented, so they're happy to avoid the fluff of small talk. While other ones, I talked to one founder, Cheryl Kemp, who went from being laid off to being the founder of a company and then accepted to a new remote accelerator in eight weeks. So I thought that was a nice tidbit to add on the virtual note that like beyond demo days, accelerators are kind of providing an interesting kind of value to to founders in this in, the, in this remote world. Yeah, it's interesting. So you wrote a piece actually about, you know, virtual accelerators and what that's like to kind of go through. Do, do you think that the overall accelerator market has done a good job taking its kind of IRL model and putting it more online? When I asked Michael Seibel, who is the CEO of Y Combinator, he said the biggest learning lesson that they've gotten from the experience is still being figured out. So I think that it is, there's a bit of grace that everyone's giving to each other. Danny, I know you heard about new accelerators popping up, and I think that's where I'm seeing the weakness right now, that the barrier to entry for accelerators has, is lowering. And it's like, I don't think that's a good thing. But yeah, I don't know. You, I, I know you saw something earlier this week. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about a, a number of different funds. I talked about one, Notation Capital, which focuses on pre-seed here in New York City. They launched something called Notation Moonlight. So they're targeting not even startups or founders per se, but actually folks still working who are considering starting a company. That's the moonlight part of it. So you maintain your job and then overnight you can work on your ideas, have a community of founders, think through different markets, products. And uh, there's sort of a feedback mechanism that might accelerate you into starting a company. Well, the interesting dynamic here is, you know, in the last week, we've seen this with NextView. I think there's two or three others who've reached out to me to talk about theirs that they're going to launch in September and October, is, is there's just so much need for funds to get deal flow today. The number of founders has declined dramatically. That's been a huge theme in a lot of the... I've had 12 or 13 VC meetings this week. And the, the one consistent is that the, the just supply of founders has decreased. A lot of folks kind of got scared because of the coronavirus. They're heading back to large companies. They're merging into other startups. And so there's just not a lot of like raw ingredients going through the system. And so you're a seed fund. Uh, you can't afford these companies to go to Y Combinator. You lose control of them. They're not in your wheelhouse anymore. And so I, I see more and more funds getting earlier, trying to do earlier rounds, trying to get these folks kind of in their communities and ecosystems before they can be lost. But the question is, is like, because of the virtual world, there's almost no entry cost, right? It's like, we're going to bring our network together and you're going to have some lectures and some classes and, and every firm is sort of doing it. So I, the question is for founders is like, is this valuable? There's no equity. So like Notation, Moonlight, there's no company. There's also no equity. There's no cost to it. It's only sort of a positive. But at the same time, when there's so many different programs to choose from, like, what do you do? Uh, is there sort of analysis paralysis in which one you choose? I was going to say, I feel like if I was a founder, depending on the stage, privilege, access to capital, I don't know if I would go with a free accelerator. There is like the the stake that needs to come from the VC firm promising all this networking that I would want the VC firm to prove. So I was just talking to Sammy Abdullah of Blossom Street. He basically said like, 
it makes less of a difference if you like you're not going to be a successful founder if you go through an accelerator or not. Like it's never going to be the make or break. It's never going to be like what gets you to success. I, I think the big the the big value super early, you know, there's a lot of mentorship for folks who haven't even started, right? They're thinking about what to do. They're trying to meet other co-founders. That's kind of the excuse that a lot of these programs do. It's like, who do I build a company with? Well, right. there's a bunch of other people at the kind of same stage as you. You know, Y Combinator's traditional value, A, was obviously Demo Day, which they're trying to co- recover with kind of doing this live virtual hybrid. But the the real effect was was the peers, right? It was a fact that you were in competition. You're almost being stack ranked with a large set of folks, almost the exact same stage as you. And if you're building a business, you're like, my peer just got 12% weekly growth. I got 9% weekly growth. I'm falling behind and I'm going to work harder to get to those big numbers. And so, you know, I, I, it wasn't so much necessarily that there was a lot of learning. I'm sure there was, I'm sure people talked, I'm sure they were trading tips and, and tactics, but the real effect was you're setting the bar really, really high on growth. And if you do well at the end of that growth cycle, you know, you might double or triple in the time of the YC batch. By the time you get to demo day, you have the beautiful hockey stick. You got a huge valuation. You're off to the races. That was the magic that's going on there. Well, when I think about accelerators in general, I think that a lot of stuff has changed with the just explosion of capital in the VC world writ large. Like if you go back to what YC used to give you to be a company that would go through YC, it was like 48 bucks and you had to like live down in Mountain View and it was, it was terrible. Now you get like a hundred K. Like there's just so much more money flowing through the system that I'm not shocked there's more accelerators now. Some of these are equity free, some of them are non-cash, et cetera. There's a, there's a range, but just to see more of them in general, not a surprise. Uh, but given that there's so much demand for the, the grist, Danny, of early stage founders, it's probably a great time to, to start something because people are desperate to find things to put money into, right? Yeah. Well, one of the conversations I had this week was just how high the salaries have become for founders. So um, both raw salary, the numbers I was hearing this last week is, you know, at, at post seed, 150, 160K. Post A, at least here in New York, not uncommon to hear 300, 325 for the founders after a, a reasonable each? size series. I like each, not like total, like that, not, not like wage bill, but like each each founder getting somewhere in the 300 to 325 range. And of course, we've seen examples like Clubhouse and others where, you know, two, three million in secondary after the A is not uncommon. And and that's part and parcel with the fact that there's just not a lot of supply for founders. And so, you know, the old rule that, you know, post series A of founders should not take more than a salary of 125 or 150, like that is dead. That is gone. The question is, is it 200 or 300? And, you know, you can kind of <laughs> burn as much capital as you sort of want. But, you know, I, I think that founders are being treated a lot better. I mean, it just, it's more competitive. Yeah. VCs need access to those deals. They just don't have the leverage to say, hey, you're going to get paid 75K and live in a, in a shack. Today, it's like, hey, we got to compete with Google. We have to compete with a lot of folks and we're going to pay you a couple million up front just to keep you going. Wow. Because I was told by VCs like 10 years ago that the higher a salary a founder takes, the worse signal it is. And now that, that was an iron rule. No, that was an yeah, absolute yeah. iron rule. That was, you know, when I first started in VC, that was an iron rule. I, I think that that's totally broken. And it, it's partially because I think the demos of founders are changing. You're getting more experienced folks. You're getting folks who are used to making 300, 400,000 out of Google, Facebook, and big tech. You're getting experienced founders from traditional industries like legal or enterprise or, or whatnot. And you can't ask folks with, you know, a partner and two kids to take a 80% pay cut. And so I think VCs have just loosened up. I mean, they're just being more flexible given the, the lack of founders out there. Well, I tell you what, I have a, I have a partner and two dogs, which is the same thing, I think. <laughs> and uh, I'll, I'll do anything for like 500K a year. So if you, need a po- if you have a Series B company that you need to ruin, I'll, I'll happily take over for six to 12 months and uh, run that into the ground for you. I'll be just as effective as the current CEO. Before we move on from the virtual accelerator point, we should talk about Disrupt for a minute because 
after a lot of work, we actually managed to take a conference that has been in person since the dawn of time. Since I was in like high school, I think was the first one that I went to back when it was TechCrunch 40, I think. Uh, and we're going to bring it on the internet. And uh, to my pleasant surprise, Danny, it actually looks like it's going to be, um, dare I say, awesome. I think it's going to be cool. Of course, we're going to say it's awesome, but I will say it's not our first rodeo. We did early stage last week, which was all virtual two-day conference and went out super well. And I think uh, for the hundreds and hundreds of founders who joined us and a lot of the great VCs and, and other uh, operational specialists who joined us on stage, it came out really well. We have a lot of surprises in store in September. If you're looking for a pass and you're listening to this on the day of Equity's release, that would be Friday, July 31st. We still have discount pricing, early bird pricing, 245 for the basic pass. Other passes are available. Those prices will increase on Saturday quite a bit. So you should really listen to Equity immediately. And if you do, you should really buy your pass now. We have a huge lineup and the agenda's online today. Yeah, yeah, it's gonna be a lot of fun. Uh, but there's, there's a moment of sadness for me because I recall my first disrupt as part of the TC staff and Natasha joined TC earlier this year and her first disrupt is not gonna be in person. She's gonna be doing it virtually. So we can't like make her go on the main stage in front of like a zillion people and scare the hell out of her like you did with me <laughs> when I was roughly her age. So I feel like she's getting an easy on ramp. Really... Totally. No, it's, it's been like a soft entrance, which I'm really happy about. Um, definitely stressed about my Wi-Fi. But no, I was amped. We can't share anything too specific, but we saw kind of demos of what it's going to look like. And obviously the agenda was released earlier this week. So it's really exciting people. I, I was looking at old, old disrupt footage just to get amped earlier. So I think I'm still going to be like pretty hype once it happens. Well, I, will, I will say the first time I went to a TechCrunch event as a TechCrunch staffer, one of our colleagues I had never met him in person because I was working remotely and he just walks up to me and he's just like, why does this room smell like piss? And then walked away. And that was the first time I met a TechCrunch staffer in person. Who was it? I need to know who. Uh, they may be the editor in chief of a competing publication at this time. <laughs> oh, I know. I know who it is. You know exactly. And as soon yeah. as I said that you knew, that makes total sense. That makes total sense. Um, all right. Well, we're telling war stories. Uh, I, so I'm a very nervous person by nature. Like that's just my, my personality is about two thirds anxiety by weight. I get very nervous before onstage stuff still after all this time of doing it. Another person who remained uh, unnamed, but uh, a dear friend of the publication was running the stage stuff. And she was like, do you want a whiskey before you go on stage? I will have one ready for you if you want one. And I was so tempted to say yes. And then I said no, because I figured I should be sober. But that <laughs> it was a good time. It's it's <laughs> it, it's a really fun event. It's going to be fun to do on the Internet. We'll all be there. I'm excited about that. But let's um. Let's pivot to the main equity theme, which has always been Stanford students, because that's the only thing we're allowed to talk about on the show. And Natasha has brought us a new slice of Stanford pie. So what do we have? Yes. And I will I will end the segment by telling you why we won't make fun of it. But um, just to give the basics, Stanford 2020 is a new fund that was just put together by a team of Stanford Graduate School of Business classmates to invest in their fellow students other startups. So they raised 1.5 million across 175 students with the minimum investment to join the club at 3000. So it's, it is obviously you to have 3000 on hand as a student requires a lot of privilege, but it is, if you are um, someone that is interested in investing, it is a t technically a more accessible way than angel investing. So um, I, I thought the fun was cool. It was it it worked for a year with Fenwick and West, which is a law firm, to figure out how to use an investment club format to invest in their super successful peers before they become the next Cloudflare. So I, I was amped to see it. Did you say business school students or undergraduate students? 
So these are business school students. Um, oh, but okay. Okay. And, and this is the reason why I, I, I wanted to write about it in a non-meme format was that, you know, in some way, the creator or one of the founding members, Steph Mew, she said that they're going to try and open up and open source the way that they got that this whole thing set up to other schools. The undergrad schools in Stanford are asking for it. Business schools across the country are asking for it. If they do actually open source it, it will make it more accessible. And they did have the privilege of working with a ton of Stanford people and a law firm as Stanford students. They might as well share it with other students that don't have that access. Okay. So before we bring Danny in as the resident Stanford expert, um, I am less annoyed by this than I was before because I thought it was undergraduates. But business school students have already had a career normally. They've gone out and made money. And now they're 150K in debt. So what's 3K more, right? So this makes more financial sense to me. But I didn't have like three extra thousand dollars when I graduated college. I had like $30. So I was annoyed. But now this makes more sense to me. All right. Now, Danny, you can defend Stanford. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I mean, you know, just look at history, right? Look at how many startups have come out. Instagram, Google, you know, (laughs) think of the hearing. And we're going to get to this in a little bit, you know, possibly later. One of those CEOs came from, you know, wasn't from Stanford, but obviously was a Stanford founded company. One of the big issues, uh, Facebook's uh, Instagram purchase, you know, again, is a very interrelated Stanford issue. So, you know, to my mind, it makes sense that VCs would invest here, that people want access to the kinds of entrepreneurial talent. What scares me about the whole thing actually isn't VCs. So back in 2010, when I was an undergrad, I ran an, uh, an event with a friend of mine called Stanford 2020. Visions of Tomorrow, which was like, what's going to happen over the next decade? We talked about synthetic biology, future of farming, future of agriculture, and a bunch of other stuff. And it scares me that A, we're in 2020, and literally someone ripped off my brand name off an event I ran 10 years ago, which they knew, and they were trying to F me over. Danny, how how big of a success was your original Stanford 2020? Uh, We had, I want to say, five, 600 people in the audience. That's not bad. Yeah, actually, for, yeah, for about bad. 10, 15 hours worth of work, it was the highest efficiency because there was no Stanford students involved in the production except for two people. So there's none of the endless Ivy League debating. Type A personalities. Uh, yeah, oh, dude, 20 people trying to run the, the stuff. Time. Like two people, we got some funding from the student union, put it on an auditorium, three, four hours. It was a bang shop. Yeah, well, I'll just, I'll, I'll wrap with this because Danny makes a, a fair point and I won't be rude for 30 seconds about Stanford, but like if I was a business school graduate of Stanford's GSB and I could put 3K into a diversified portfolio of the startups of my peers, that's a great way to turn 3K into 10. Now, it's not going to be an enormous return because it's just, you know, it's a VC fund, you'll probably get three, four X gross, Danny, but I mean, it's still like a reasonable way to put your money to work. Unless you're in the next school. Probably right. not. Well, I, I was just gonna say, like, I feel like, I yeah, I don't want to overhype. Don't the... respond to that. Like, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I, 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 I don't want to. That's why my portfolio is negative ten percent IRR over the last all six right. years. It's, it's all, let her talk. It's all index funds. <laughs> um, I don't know what I was even saying. I was just gonna say not to over. We shouldn't overhype it because I think that it's it's like a nice way to get checks into your friends' companies. I don't think it's gonna be like. What, these Stanford students are going to drop out, drop out of Stanford and then just run this. So it's right. just a good way to be ahead of the competition. And they're not going to beat my, my final point is they're not going to beat Kleiner Perkins for investing in their classmates. Like, I think it's, it's naive to think that they are, they might just get like some early access, but I don't think they're still going to be traditional VCs personally. 
No, they don't have enough money, and it, it's a student-led thing. It's probably going to be passed down through generations of B-School students so they can keep doing this long-term, and it's fun. It's going to teach people how to invest in private companies and bring more capital total to young enterprise. It's neat. That's all i got to say about that. Guys, let's talk about some funding rounds, including $200 million for uh, Roe, which is being described in this headline as, quote, digital elective care and telemedicine provider, which I think is a very polite way to describe what they've historically been known for distributing. The new money comes in at a $1.5 billion valuation led by uh, oh, Danny's favorite firm, General Catalyst. I'd forgotten about that. Participation by FirstMark Capital, Torch, Signal Fire, TQ Ventures, Initialized Capital, 3L, and Box Group. So quite a lot of people came together to put this capital into work. And according to our research team, aka Mr. Gates, they've raised $376 million since launch back in 2017. And critically, not just for dudes now, also for women. You know, you joked about the headline, but I feel like it is a really awesome success story that they started off with this singular product that they took. It seemed like they took 18 months to to create a website for, but they were really creating the infrastructure where they could now, I think, do 20 conditions. And I, yeah, I don't know. I think I think it, it made me optimistic and happy to see um, a round of this size for something that started so, so small. Telemedicine also usually makes my eyes glaze over, but... I think the way that they entered it really hip, really product first and then telemedicine was cool. Like they have the brand recognition, at least within like startup tech folk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we and we joke gently, but also I think that's important to say that, like, you know, if you can treat 20 conditions with telemedicine, people will have greater access to care at a lower price point. And so it's perfectly fine to be humorous about it. But fundamentally, it's more medical access for more folks. And that is, it's a fair point, Tosh. We have some revenue growth numbers, Danny, 328% from 18 to 19, current run rate, run rate of around 250 million. And if I recall from some coverage, not profitable, but I presume that the revenue for this company isn't software level margins, you would think? It may actually be software level margins. I mean, you know, it's also recurring, right? I mean, it is truly ARR. If you want to continue to have treatment, you have to continue taking pills. You know, the magic of this company for, for years has been advertising. I mean, I don't know if this story is apocryphal or not, but early on, I, I was told the story of like, you know, they were extremely good at uh, sort of guerrilla marketing tactics. So for instance, they were advertising in like gym locker rooms. And the implication was, is like, when, you know, when do people think about this problem? Probably in a gym locker room where people like are kind of comparing and contrasting, so to speak. And apparently that was like one of the more successful early growth tactics. And I say growth with a little bit of a pun there. Um, but <laughs> I can't, I can't. We were so <laughs> high level before Danny took over the conversation. <laughs> Natasha and I were adults Being about this. Adults and Danny's going, <laughs> Danny's going straight below the belt. Keep going, elective, sir. Elective care <laughs> and telemedicine provider. There you go. But I, I do think that, that that funnel is still the key to all of what they're doing, right? So they do take a lot of medications that are out of patent. You know, they are in, in many cases generics. I don't know if that's true for all 20 different conditions, but they are, they are taking stuff that's sort of off the shelf putting a nice brand around it, finding unique funnels and marketing channels in order to connect users to, to treatments. And, uh, as you said, I mean, it's, it's a great way to expand coverage, particularly for conditions like erectile dysfunction and others where there can be a little bit of awkwardness in bringing that up with your doctor. Finding a way to bridge that gap with a product is actually kind of the magic here. Yeah, I was going to say the stigma aspect of it is, is definitely what makes me the most excited and impressed by it. it, it probably, we probably wouldn't have been talking about it if it wasn't if it didn't come into the market with such a loud statement around erectile dysfunction. And, you know, we've seen this a lot with mental health too, right? We've seen it with Calm and meditation, and there's a bunch of others who've raised quite a bit of money over the last couple of years. And in much the same way, I think the marketing, yes, it, it can be cute at times or it, it has some tactics, but fundamentally it's about 
getting customers who otherwise want to kind of avoid the problem or don't really want to talk about it to actually get to a purchasing decision. And, and you know, hopefully that makes people, you know, actually healthier and, and better. And it also makes these companies a lot of money. So it's a nice win-win. So I, I need to fact check myself because I, I don't recall if I had this correct, but uh, it was Roman, right? And now it was it's Roman. Roe. And then their women's health group is called Rory, right? Rory, yes. And their um, zero is their smoking, uh, stop smoking product. I don't approve of those because then Liza might hear about them and make me stop vaping. So we're going to move on from that. <laughs> There's a little bit more news though attached to this. So startups often come in twos, you know? And uh, so in this case, Roe has a major competitor called Hims. Similar sort of model guys, uh, you know, telemedicine, drugs, that sort of thing. They may be going public via a SPAC for about a billion dollars. This is according to Reuters. It's a hot moment for IPOs and kind of SPAC transactions and transactions in general, as we discussed on the show. I'm going to be fascinated by the economics if we get to see how HIMS performs. It'll give us a, maybe a window into how Roe is doing to help explain the valuation, the amount of capital that's raised. So if we if that does happen and we do get some documentation about how HIMS performs, we will bring Roe back up. And, uh, and parts into that. Danny, I mean, I, I have to say, I want to see a big SPAC happen. That way we can see if all the hype is more than just kind of like, you know, hot air on Twitter. Absolutely. Well, I will say, you know, one of the investors in Row is Canon Ventures. Canon has also done another round that we want to talk about this week, a, a company called Instrumental, which raised $20 million in a Series B participation from Root Ventures, Eclipse Ventures, and First Round Capital. And what's interesting here is Instrumental uses vision-powered AI, in quotes, detect manufacturing anomalies. So, so years ago, I was looking at a company which may actually still be around called Sight Machine. And the idea was to use computer vision to handle tolerances. So think like your screws, there's all kinds of different parts that have to go. Think, think uh, automotive, right? You have a ton of parts actually in the Midwest. And the idea was like, hey, you know, you need this part to a certain level. Tolerance has to be within a millimeter. Today, there's literally people with measuring sticks, if you will, trying to do that. Can't we use computer vision to try to make this clearer? And uh, Instrumental is going into the same thing. So they're looking at anomalies, manufacturing defects, try to optimize it to improve the kind of efficiency and workflow of industrial plants. So, uh, Danny, I love the intro on that. I'll, I'll throw in there that down to the millimeter isn't that precise. I grew up around a lot of lathes and milling machines and cutting torches and stuff. My dad's a big, uh, uh, like, build stuff guy. And we were doing stuff down to the 10,000th of an inch. Uh, often for tolerances, depending on uh, how focused we were on 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 parts. Not not to be not to correct you, but to point out how serious people take this stuff. How important it is to get it right for many things. There's not a lot of fit and slip in certain bearings and so forth. Instrumentals around that I covered, uh, Series B, super interesting company. The reason why I, I liked it is they they literally put kind of like computer powered cameras into production lines in factories in China where there isn't great internet. They have to be trainable with a small sample set. They need to be able to operate on site, and you know. The electronics manufacturing world, which is where they're currently playing, is enormous. It is so big. And so they have an enormous TAM to, go, to play into. The CEO, Anna Katrina, she was great. She worked at Apple in manufacturing and design. And really fun to talk to her about kind of the state of, uh, of manufacturing and how hard it is to get into this world. And so what they do is they don't show up and try to work on production lines. They show up in pre-production when they're still in development, prove that their thing works. And then when they scale up those lines... Then they have um, a booming kind of equivalent to SaaS style business model. So I think it's dope. I really liked covering this company. It made me learn a lot of stuff about like current, like why is there no internet capacity at these factories? Well, because they're rural and et cetera. So it was a fun uh, look into the world, but we're going to move on to something a bit more controversial. It's going to lead us into the hearings here at the end. The, the news is that Facebook, and we talked about this a little bit in a different context a few weeks ago, is going to seek insights into startups by investing into other VC funds. Natasha, what is going on? 
Yeah, so the information wrote a story this week sh- sharing that Facebook had been investing or approaching actually a number of smaller VC firms as a way to stay in tune to the competition. Kate Clark pointed out that it was kind of taking a page out of Mark Andreessen's handbook of, you know, they don't need to invest in these funds for their own wealth or any returns, really. But it's a great way to tune into um, what other people are doing and things that they or their team might not be in yet. And I mean, I think it's especially, of course, interesting. We were making jokes about this a couple of weeks ago when we heard news that Facebook might be creating a corporate venture capital firm. The question still remains like Facebook, like how how comfortable (laughs) are you like getting into bed with Facebook ever? Never. You are never comfortable with that. So um, when I saw the news, I was like, all right, just another version of the the same story we've been talking about for a while. I think it's interesting when you look at corporate venture capital. I mean, there's real a spectrum, right? From you know, something like uh, Slack Fund, where Slack presumably isn't trying to copy a bunch of, I'm doing this top of mind, but it presumably isn't trying to copy a lot of different startup ideas coming in. Instead, it's trying to empower its ecosystem of people who play on top of Slack. And so the idea here is like, you know, we, we saw this with Twitter early on before they murdered all the developer tools and apps that were used to be on Twitter. A lot of other kind of platform plays, you can imagine Stripe, Shopify, and others either have venture funds, have thought about venture funds, or do a little bit of side investing to sort of empower companies that are trying to build on top of them. You know, the, the challenge with Facebook is like, no one really builds a startup on top of Facebook anymore, right? Like, at least as far as I know. I mean, what's the last startup that you've heard? It was Zynga. like, this is 100%. <laughs> <laughs> well, how that work out? Medium bad. When I heard this, and, and we have a quote from this, uh, you know, Facebook spokesperson saying, we don't expect to make money from these investments. It's like, well, then why are you doing this, right? What is the strategic value other than literally either copying or just getting pre-market intel and to try to be more competitive. So I actually have no idea, not only why a founder would take it, but I don't have no idea how Facebook even argues to a founder. Like, why would you want Facebook to round the cap table in the first place? There was just that Amazon story of people, of startups getting basically their ideas poached from the Alexa fund. That was obviously brought up like numerous times during the antitrust hearing yesterday. I I really I mean, this is just obviously the difference of an email, but I I should reach out to these people and ask them genuinely, why were you excited or interested in taking money? Because it feels super obvious, but I'm sure there's some reason it's it still is Amazon and Facebook. You would want their attention or validation at the least a meeting. You know what? I, I, so I'm on the road occasionally and I see other people driving and I still see people riding motorcycles without helmets. You know, and I think that explains why people take money from Facebook, because some, some people just can't pay attention to like risk, you know, anti-maskers. Just, I, I actually Very think, it, you know, it, in a more positive sense, I, I think the Valley remains a relatively positive place where people actually work together somewhat cooperatively. Like, you know, people don't by and large just rip off and steal ideas. And I, I think what you're seeing is there are now more and more bad actors. I mean, I don't know how else to describe it, of, of folks who are just completely not incentive aligned to create a better ecosystem, to empower founders to build companies. They're just there to, to leech. I don't know how else to say it. And I, I think for a lot of founders, many of whom are young, who are not experienced with this, who have never worked with a business partner who, you know, sort of flipped them over, you know, it can be really shocking to find out that, you know, you're just talking about your ideas and execution plans and you're sharing some data. And then that company literally just copies it, you know, over to their production team and your app is on the app store under their own brand you know, two weeks later. I just think that people are surprised. And I think it's it's something that's really key to the DNA and success of, of Silicon Valley to protect that culture and fight off these bad actors. And it's frustrating because it feels harder than just avoiding Facebook's fund and Alexa, the Alexa fund. Like, for example, if 
Mark Andreessen has a stake in this company and is investing in a micro VC and the micro VC catches whiff of a company that's competing with one of Mark Andreessen's investments. I'm guessing that there could be always be a conflict of interest. So I don't yeah, I don't know. It, it, it feels much more complicated than just avo- avoiding the obvious. Yeah, I think I mean, look, it's one thing for venture capitalists to get, you know, scout networks out there and get more intel and in many ways that actually helps founders, right? Because it actually accelerates their fundraisers, you're going to get preempted. Um, in many ways, there's a lot of positive externalities. When it comes to the corporate side, the complete opposite, right? Like, I mean, Mark Andreessen isn't starting a company, so to speak. Maybe he can go find a founder to go do it, but you're already out doing it. He's far more likely to invest in you than to try to find another team to do the exact same thing, catch up with you, et cetera, et cetera. Facebook, on the other hand, has tens of thousands of employees. Google has hundreds of thousands. Same with Amazon. They have the resources to go do this. And, and not only do they have the resources, but particularly Amazon with the Wall Street Journal uh, investigation that you were talking about, Natasha. And, and now with Facebook, they have the track record of having copied. I mean, they have the brand to do this. Uh, it's not some hypothetical. Uh, and I think that's what makes the difference here. Yeah, I want to flip, a, flip this around and talk about a positive example of what a CVC can do. And I love uh, Stripe's uh, CVC. And I, I bring it up because I've covered some companies that have taken money from Stripe, one of which is Fast, which is doing kind of like super speedy checkouts and so forth. And uh, they raised money partially from the Stripe fund back in March of this year. They do payments, Stripe does payments, Stripe wants them to use their platform, they put money into them, they get a customer, Fast gets more money, it makes perfect synergy. Pico is another example of a uh, Stripe-backed company. So this can be synergistic, it can be positive, and I think it's good to keep that in mind. Not everyone, as we said, is, is Alexa or Facebook. Even like earlier this week, the whole Twitter list with Vicarious debacle, were you, did you guys, were you guys a part of that? <laughs> oh yeah. Danny, your eyes. <laughs> I have no idea. But the point I wanted to make was instead of, you know, pushing them away, Twitter was like, let's work together. Let's see what happens next. And I was like, I will take this startup bit of good news with with both hands and put it close to my heart because I'm just happy to see, you know, something that was a meme just kind of be taken seriously by Twitter and let, let's see what happens. I feel like Twitter has broken my heart so many times with its developer relations that yeah, I, okay, I, yeah, I'm, I'm going to not get my hopes up, but I, I'm optimistic in the same way that you are. I was going to say it's sort of Twitter is like marrying the same person over and over again, and you've gotten a divorce three times and you're like, no, it's this time is like for real. And <laughs> and it's never for real. Uh, once you've done it three or four times through the divorce court, you probably should give it up. Yeah. Uh, but I think I think we've covered quite a bit uh, this week. So, well, before we go, though, Danny, really quick, Twitter did come up for a hot second in the uh, congressional hearings this week. And if you missed the five hour C-SPAN Palooza, uh, lucky you, we have a lot of coverage on TechCrunch.com. Feel free to go check it out. We're wrapping on this little note because the equity crew is working on a cool piece called the Anti-Antitrust Club that's going to fit into that. So if you want to prepare yourself for what we're going to talk about probably next week, go back and read some coverage of the hearings. It's a lot of fun. Antitrust, big tech. It's a good time. We will talk to you guys then. Bye. Bye.